Good morning, Vietnam! Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. The name's Bond. James Bond. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family. Here's Johnny! Whoa, this is heavy. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Working on my day off. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Showtime with Roman podcast. I am your host, Roman RBC, and if you've been listening, you know what this podcast is all about. I usually bring on a guest and we chat about our favorite thing in the entire world, and that is movies, filmmaking, cinema, uh, something that we absolutely adore since uh, the day we were born, because it was ingrained in our DNA uh, at the start. So, not really sure where I was going to go with that, but, um, so, here's the thing. Had a guest lined up for this week's episode of the podcast, and there's some scheduling things that came up, and unfortunately, he wasn't going to be able to make time for this week's episode. So, this week, you have just me. And I know that sounds boring, and you're probably getting ready to click out right now, but don't worry. Uh, I have some new things in today, or just a new thing, really. Um, so... Since I'm by myself and there's not too many news topics for the week, we've got a new Fallout trailer for Mission Impossible, of which I haven't watched yet, simply because I want to wait until um, I find out how much information it shows in the trailer, just because I'm so incredibly excited for the film, and I've seen the first trailer a million times, and I love it, and I feel like that showed a lot, so I don't want to see a second trailer and then find out that it shows even more information, because I'm already set, I'm already good to go, I'm already there opening night, right? So I could talk about that. I could talk about maybe the audience reactions to Deadpool 2 and Solo, a Star Wars story, but I figured I'd get into that next week for Solo, and then I can just talk about um, Deadpool reactions when I preview Deadpool later on in the show. So what I have for you today, it's not going to be a very long episode. I'll try anyways. I understand that when I say the not-so-feature-length podcast, well... I've been running the show for over an hour and about an hour, 20 minutes over the last couple weeks. But since it's just me today, I'll try and keep it short, sweet, and to the point, uh, going to about maybe 30 to 40 minutes at most. Okay, so what I have for you today is I decided to go into the uh, Movie Talk by Movie Fans Facebook group and ask people there, hey, what are some movie-related questions you want me to answer on my next episode of the podcast? Because I haven't done that yet, and I figured I'd take some questions from some really great people. I also posted it on my personal Facebook account, and I got some responses there. So I have one, two, three, four, five... Six. Six. Okay, so I have six questions lined up today. Some fun ones, some serious ones, some exciting ones. So we're just going to dive right into it, um, and then I'll get to the Deadpool 2 preview right after that before um, I sign off for this week's episode of the podcast. So the first question comes from a guest I had on two weeks ago, Brady Warren. He says, what are some minor movies in a director's filmography that should be considered major this is a really great question because i've never thought about this question um 
but the first one that came to mind for me is Polytechnique from Denis Villeneuve. And I understand I talk about him every chance I get, but honestly, when you look at a film like Polytechnique, not only is it semi-relevant uh, because of school shootings and stuff like that, but it's a film that just says a lot just about, and it's not very subtle. It's not a very subtle film at all, uh, but it is in black and white, and it is just a very haunting and very harrowing film, um, very condensed and just very dramatic. And, you know, you really uh, see the earliest stages of Denis' uh, career playing out in that film. And so the film is just about, you know, this school shooter on campus that hates feminists. And he believes that all women are feminists and that they deserve to die. And it is just a truly gut-wrenching film based on a true story, uh, school shooting on a polytechnic campus. And I believe that should be considered major because it is a film that just has just shook me to my core. And it, I've saw it so long ago, but it's still sticking with me. And, and not a lot of people talk about it enough. You know, you've got Blade Runner 2049. You've got Sicario. You've got Arrival. You know, you've got all these great films that he's directed, but no one ever really talks about polytechnic. Another one that, you know, it's come around and more people obviously love it now than they did you know even just a couple years ago but people finally getting their eyes on Memento and that is just another really great film from a really great director and I think that more people should be seeing films like that and should be considered major in that filmography so great question Brady great question um also, Brady, if you're listening right now, I would love to know your answer to that question. I, I would really be interested uh, in that. So, coming from Josh Price, who I had on for the Avengers Infinity War special, he asks, what are some of your favorite movie reviews and pieces of movie criticism? Another great question, as someone that does write reviews every week, or usually every week. I haven't written one in two weeks, because there hasn't been too much out. And, you know, I am not a billionaire, and I don't get paid to review movies, so, well gotta spend my money where I can. Uh, I'll have my Deadpool 2 review up this weekend. Um, but what are some of your favorite movie reviews and pieces of movie criticism? The first one that jumped to mind here was Roger Ebert's Spider-Man 2 review. As someone that loves Spider-Man 2 and as someone that adores Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, Roger Ebert's review of that film truly just encapsulates everything I adore about that film. And it's just a testament to how great of a writer that Roger Ebert is. He's someone that I find, um, he just understands the art form. He understands the art of film criticism. He understands the uh, art of, you know, having a structure and write a review and get the message across to his readers. And I think that he is just a dynamite writer. And it's unfortunate that he passed in 2013. I, I just feel like if we had him today in the current climate we are in now with Marvel versus DC and like the MCU truly peaking at this point, um, it's it would be great to have his voice around because when you look at that Spider-Man 2 review, he just really dives deep into what is so special about the film and the fact that, you know, you have this character uh, behind this mask and behind this suit, just this human. He's, you know, and there's even that train scene, which is just iconic at this point and probably the best action scene in a comic book movie. Um, and you just have this guy, he's just behind the suit, and he's able to you do all these amazing things, but he deals with problems that we're having. And I feel like Tobey Maguire in that film is one of the finest pieces of comic book movie acting because he's able to portray that fun side of Spider-Man where, you know, he's able to throw out quips and, you know, the cheesy lines when he's at the bank with Doc Ock and he goes, here's your change, and he throws a bag of money at him. And it's like, that to me is Spider-Man. 
And for me, there was another question that Colton Hunt had left, but I decided not to take it because I wanted to kind of just pick ones that were a little bit more variety and not too comic book movie related. But for uh, Spider-Man 2, that Spider-Man to me is someone that is just the everyman. You know, I'm someone that has attributes and traits that people would consider uh, great. But I also have issues I have to deal with in life. You know, rent, car payment, making sure I get to work on time, making sure I get homework done, if I still were in school. But you get the point. You know, people deal with that type of stuff every single day. So in a movie like Spider-Man 2, uh, you have these amazing things in the film that just really, you know, gravitate towards me as a viewer and a lot of other people obviously because it's considered one of the best Spider-Man films ever and I would consider that it's probably the best uh, and Roger Ebert truly just gets into the nitty gritty with that film and I believe that he firmly understands uh, just how special that movie is and he really uh, is able to convey that really well in his writing and I would recommend all of you to check it out you can find it on the internet anywhere just type it in and uh, it's a great review it's a long one but I feel like some of the longest not longest necessarily but Lots of reviews that really just take their time are some of the better ones out there. Um, another question from Elliot Shin. He asks, barring Mad Max Fury Road and Blade Runner 2049, what is your favorite blockbuster film in terms of cinematography? If anyone knows me well enough, they know that I love cinematography. I don't love cinematography that is able to just show you just these grand visuals. That's great. That's cool. Not to just show me like these beautiful colors because cinematography is more than that. It movies that move the camera with purpose or meaning and uh and just really just convey a lot of the themes in the film through the you know just moving the camera. A lot of themes in the a lot of uh, character arcs, a lot of character interactions, reactions, stuff like that. Uh if you look at a lot of older films like uh, a lot of foreign films too, The Seventh Seal is one with just outstanding cinematography. I haven't seen Persona, but I've seen lots of images, clips, and uh, gifs of Persona, and it's like, wow, that cinematography is just top-notch. I might not fully understand it in context, but with the clips that I've seen, I'm like, this is a beautiful film. And then you look at a film like Stalker uh, from Andrei Tarkovsky, and that cinematography in the film, it's more than just beautiful. It's a film that is able to convey a lot of the elements in that film uh, really well just by you know moving the camera, and that's what's truly special about it. The characters don't speak too much dialogue about it, but the camera is able to capture that beautifully. And so, what film, well, blockbuster film is my favorite in terms of cinematography outside of the two, because those two would have been my answers for sure, because Mad Max Fury Road and Blade Runner 2049 are just dynamite on a technical level, especially cinematography. Um, and it is my favorite film of all time, but The Dark Knight to me would be my answer here, simply because a lot of people don't really credit that film enough for having like superb cinematography. Uh, and especially when you look at the comic book movie genre, you've got a lot of films like Man of Steel and Batman v Superman with great cinematography. The Marvel movies have standard, okay, average cinematography. There's some films with great cinematography in them, like I would consider Iron Man. Even Infinity War, I thought, had great cinematography, even if the framing and blocking was a little off. But The Dark Knight, for me... Even though it takes place in the real, real world, essentially, and they shot it in Chicago, you really just feel like you're immersed in that world. 
and you're just really transported to a place outside of our own reality, even though it looks a lot like ours. And that's what makes the Dark Knight trilogy and the Dark Knight so special to me, because that film there, um, it just... It, captures the dramatic side of you know Batman's arc tremendously well slow zooms uh, zooms from helicopters just flying over the city you've got um, and then you've got like the nitty gritty cinematography with Heath Ledger uh, using a camcorder himself to record some of the Joker's interrogation scenes on some of the citizens of Gotham and I think that is just beautiful and I think that when uh, Harvey Dent or sorry Two-Face enters the picture you really just get a mix of both and it really just conveys a lot of the great themes and elements in the film uh, through cinematography and through the visual language and through the cinematic language that Nolan is putting on screen. And that film never ceases to amaze me with cinematography, especially when it comes to how much intercutting is in the film, because a lot of times directors try and do just that. Another f director uh, like George Lucas, when it comes to uh, the Star Wars prequels specifically, not going to bash on him too much here, but he, that, those movies intercut a lot. And when those movies intercut, sometimes the camera just lacks this sort of momentum or energy that previous scenes had, right? And I feel like a lot of directors have a hard time capitalizing on that. And Nolan does that really, really well. Because when he cuts from Harvey Dent's party to the judge getting in her car to the commissioner, you know, drinking uh, out of his, you know, whiskey glass. You know, the, these this is a thing that most directors aren't good at, but Nolan nails it. And uh, that would probably be... No, that is definitely my answer for what is my favorite blockbuster film in terms of cinematography. Uh, this question comes from Robbie Navarro. This is a fun one. Uh, so when I posted a uh, the image uh, for the question that I posed to the group, uh, it was a picture of me standing in front of the Jurassic Park water ride because I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan. And I love, love, love that movie. And I love the ride. It's a great water ride. Um, the T-Rex is awesome when it swings at you as you're falling down uh, at Universal Studios. Um, and Robbie, he loves Jurassic Park more than me. And we're we're two very big fans of the film, And but he's definitely a bigger fan. And we always butt heads when I personally think that the Spinosaurus is cooler than the T-Rex. But um, all fun aside, he asks, how come when Denis Villeneuve's arrival made your top ten, it had to replace Jurassic Park in your top five? Now, here's the thing. Jurassic Park and Arrival, to me, are two of some of the best science fiction films ever. Um, Arrival, a little more recent, obviously. Um, but Arrival is going to age very well. It's going to be a film that is going to stand the test of time for a long time because it's about communication, and we communicate every day, and how a lack of communication could prevent us from, you know, reaching our goal, you know, being able to accomplish things, right? And Jurassic Park is a great science fiction film. A lot of people think it's just a standard B-movie blockbuster. That movie is about, you know, hum humans trying to play God, trying to create life, you know, and maybe it's just not for us. We're not supposed to do these things, right? And we're only capable of doing so much. And obviously it's a great in concept, but in execution you could kill a lot of people, a la Jurassic World. Because, and that's why Jurassic World to me, even though it's not nearly as good as Jurassic Park, and I would still contend it's the second best Jurassic film in that franchise, um, I still think that movie is about, you know, here's what would have happened if that came to life. John Hammond... Uh, his dreams came true and was able to have this uh, vision of the park fulfilled. 
And the reason why I had a rival just usurp Jurassic Park is just for me personally, I think it just connects on a deeper level because it's about humanity as a whole. And even though Jurassic Park does touch on those things a little bit more, um, or does touch on those things as well, excuse me, I believe that Arrival is just about more, and that's why I appreciate it, because I feel like when it comes to Arrival, you know, it presents these things where, you know, maybe, you know, we're not supposed to know the future, but at the same time, it might be important to accomplish our goals, and there's just so much going on in that film. That film is also about cinema, and how directors use cinematic, cinematic language to communicate with its audience. The the Aliens in Arrival, that's the directors. The screen that they're behind and that we're in front of is a movie screen, and then we're the people that is learning from the directors and the stuff that they put on screen and how it's able to communicate with us. And that's why that film is so special to me, because it's about so many things and it executes those things so well, and the fact that it's directly about movies and filmmaking and communicating with its audience makes it a film that... I'm glad it's in my top five, even though it does usurp Jurassic Park, which has been one of my favorite films since I was a child, a toddler. I love that film, and I love it every time I watch it. I can't wait to re-watch it in prep for Jurassic World, and I want a 4K release, damn it. Give me a 4K Jurassic Park, and I will give you all the money in the world. Um, and so that's why it usurped it. Honestly, it could interchange. I haven't seen Jurassic Park since I last watched Arrival, because I've been waiting for... Uh, Jurassic World to come around, uh, so maybe it'll change again, but I doubt it, because honestly, Arrival, like, I really think it could end up cracking my top three or four, top two maybe, within uh, in the next couple years. Uh, so great question. Here's a question that I've been dying to answer. Tristan Meyer, or Mayer, excuse me, he's going to be next week's guest, ass. What makes a movie a classic? Is it a movie that stands the test of time and is still good decades later, a la Star Wars? Is it the impact a movie had culturally, creatively, even if it isn't as enjoyable to a modern audience, 2001 or Citizen Kane? Do you think the phrase modern classic is an oxymoron? So there's a lot of questions in here. So we're going to start at the first one. Uh, actually, we're not going to start at the first one because I'll have to get around to that later. What makes a movie a classic? Now... Do you think the phrase modern classic is an oxymoron? 150 million percent yes. Here's the thing. When movies come out today, and I made a video on the channel, uh, is Infinity War the, the next... Is, the, is Infinity War this generation's Empire Strikes Back? That's the video title. Go check it out. Because a lot of people are saying that this is this generation's Empire Strikes Back. Here's the thing. When movies come out, there is an implicit recency bias for everybody, period. Uh, okay, maybe not period. That sounded a little aggressive. But here's the thing. is When a lot of recent movies come out, we're riding this hype train because it's just so recent. And we love it so much because it just fits in our time so well. Here's the thing. In 30 to 40 years, the films that we love now might not stand the test of time. And that's okay. So calling something a modern classic doesn't make sense because the reason why we call films classics is because they've stood the test of time. They've cemented their place in film history. They've cemented their f place in film history in terms of being able to inspire many other films that come after it. Even if you don't like Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, 
Blade Runner is a classic film. Why? Because it inspired so many science fiction films. It inspired a ton of science fiction anime. It inspired a lot of films that we see today. It inspired Christopher Nolan. It inspired Denis Villeneuve. It inspired a lot of direct Alex Garland. It, the reason why they're classics is because they inspire the directors that work today. And they inspire the works we see today. If a film comes out today and it doesn't inspire any films, and it doesn't stand the test of time, it's not a classic. For our time, it might be a great film, but that's the key. For our time. There are a few films, maybe not a few, but there are is a handful of films that I have seen, I have, again, I haven't seen everything, that is going to stand the test of time and be considered classics. A couple off the top of my head. The Before Trilogy going to stand the test of time. Why? One, it doesn't deal with big budget visual effects. Two, it's about romance and life. Three, it's films that have already aged tremendously well. Look at the Before before Sunrise and Before Sunset. Even though Before Midnight is only five years old, you know, you've got Before Sunset and Before Sunrise, which have aged tremendously, right? And for a film to be a modern classic, it just doesn't make sense. I love Blade Runner 2049. It's one of my favorite films ever. It can't be a modern classic because classic is a film that defines films that have aged so well and defined generations of filmmaking and have inspired so many directors and works after that. So modern classic is an oxymoron. Can it be a film, like a modern masterpiece? That doesn't even make sense. Why can't it just be a masterpiece in general? If you say something is a modern masterpiece, you're kind of devaluing just how special the film is, and we're not really seeing the film in a larger scope and looking ahead at what the film can accomplish. So good, good question. Um, And, you know, I ultimately answered all three there. But yes, what makes a movie a classic is, ultimately, can it span decades and decades of film history? The prequels, their visuals haven't aged well. Are they classics? No, they're not going to be classics. The reason why the Star Wars films are classics is because it made a cultural impact on film and because it stood the test of time. I don't mind if people are like, hey, this film is destined to be a classic. Great. You can. That's how we should be talking about film. We can say that the footsteps are there, the stepping stones are there, we can see where this thing is going to be in five years. And that's great. But if we're calling something a modern classic, that doesn't make sense. If we're calling something a modern masterpiece, it doesn't make sense. Why can't it just be a masterpiece? Right? Um, So great question, Tristan. I can't wait to have you on next week to chat solo. Um, And then the last question here, Addison Payton, what are some of your guilty pleasure movies? They may not be cinematically pleasing, but they're just fun movies. Great question, Addison, because I haven't talked about this too much since I started the show, and for any new listeners that don't know me too well, there are a couple guilty pleasure movies that I adore. Batman Forever is so good, because it's so fun, it's so bizarre, it's so wild, and Nicole Kidman, one of my first cinematic crushes growing up, um, it's a really, it's so 90s, like, if, if, if I were to pick, like, any film to sort of define the 90s outside of film even, it would be Batman Forever. It's wild, it's crazy, it's got lots of colors, lots of cool gadgets, and I think Val Kilmer's pretty underrated as Bruce Wayne and Batman, honestly. I, it's a really fun film. I really, really like it. Um, and I don't really like using the term fun to describe 
films, but when it comes to guilty pleasures, that's probably the best word to describe them. Uh, another one, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, is even though it's super long for no reason, that movie is loads of fun. Great music, great fun set pieces, great performances. Uh, uh, Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow is really great in that film. Curse of the Black Pearl is far and away the best film in that franchise, but Dead Man's Chest is a hell of a lot of fun, and I love Davy Jones in that movie. I think he's a dynamite villain. Um, another one, uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon. What a wacky film, but man, as someone that grew up just outside Chicago, I love seeing that city blown to pieces, and I know that's a lot of things, this is like the same thing everyone says when they talk highly about that film, but that movie has a really good twist, killing Ironhide, it has a pretty fun villain voiced by Leonard Nimoy, straight up voicing, and I'm not too big into Star Trek, but I've recently gotten into it, so I know a lot of the quotes from Spock, and he's straight up quoting, like, lines from, like, way back when for no reason, even though there's no correlation with the characters whatsoever between Spock and, uh, whoever, uh, Leonard Nimoy plays in Dark of the Moon, but it's just a really fun film with lots of great action, honestly. I think it's, it's a movie that, uh, even though Transformers is the best one in that franchise, that's the most fun one. I I have a blast watching that film. It's it's not very good, but man, I enjoy myself when I watch it. Um, and then the last one, uh, I'm sure I have more, but the last one that comes to my head, and I've only seen it once, and that is the Wachowski Speed Racer. It's just recently been 10 years since it released, and I watched it, and I thought it was okay, but I honestly haven't stopped thinking about it since I saw it. Because in, in one of the big advocates for Speed Racer is Musa and Mikey. Mikey I had on uh, one of the earlier episodes. And they really enjoy that film and they talk about it all the time. But honestly, like it's not even... Because I do converse with them a lot. But I haven't stopped thinking about that film since I saw it a couple months ago. And I, I think it's just a boatload of fun because it is about you know, individual individuality and how, you know, corporations try and strip that from us and want to turn us into like these, you know, you know, uh, it's just basically like when you see like YouTubers, a lot of YouTubers sell out to, you know, uh, certain companies to sell products and promote products on their channel. You know, that's the best example I could think of right now, but that's basically what Speed Racer is. And I think that it's just a really fun film with really slick cinematography. And even though the visual effects aren't up to snuff and, uh, some of the acting is okay. And, it's ultimately not really a rewarding experience because plot points don't go anywhere. I think it's a lot of fun, and I think it's it's a film that I can sit down with my siblings and just kind of enjoy, you know, and just eat some candy and just have some fun. When I think of that movie, I think of Gobstoppers for some reason. And uh, Speed Racer is definitely up there as one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies. Great question, Addison. I really appreciate it. Um, and that'll do it for the questions today. So great questions, Addison, Tristan, Robbie, Elliot, Josh, and Brady. Uh, really enjoyed answering those. So now we're going to go ahead and preview Deadpool 2, ladies and gentlemen. So don't want to spend too much time on this because, again, there's not really too much to talk about. Um, but basically, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that Here's the thing. The reason why I center my podcast, not center, excuse me, why I have a segment in my podcast dedicated to preview film, previewing films and not reviewing films is because I want to preview stuff so that when we plug certain parts of where we are on the internet, 
you can go find us there so you can find our content there and support us in other areas as well. Because personally, I find, and I've been uh, guilty of this before in the past, for me personally, for a long time, I used to just listen to podcasts to get my reviews. But when I found out that I should be reading more than listening, that's when I decided that maybe we should just preview so people can find us in other areas and support us there. Because if you're supporting us here, I feel like maybe you should be supporting us in other areas as well. And maybe you like certain bits of our content better than others. If you like the podcast more than my reviews, fine. That's great. If you like my reviews more than podcasts, great. That's fine. I just think personally, when we sort of just eliminate all of this work or limit, excuse me, all of our work that we put out on the internet just to like in a podcast form, we spent all this time just regurgitating the same information. So... I feel like it'd be nice to just put in the podcast our preview, and then you go find us on the internet for our reviews. Um, So that's basically why I preview films on here. But Deadpool 2, here's the thing. The first Deadpool is a blast. Okay? It's not... And it's a film I feel like, for some reason, people... I don't want to say don't get it, but I feel like a lot of the times people are like, oh... You know, it's riffing on all these origin stories, and it's just a standard origin story in and of itself. It's like, that's the point. Like, that's kind of the whole stick. That's kind of what they're trying to do. And I feel like a lot of people don't get that. And I haven't seen Deadpool 2, and I heard it's surprisingly better than the first film from a lot of people. I've heard it's very bad from a lot of people. I've heard that it's just okay, and I've heard that it's about on par with the first film. So I'm not necessarily too excited for the film. I'm not necessarily not, you know, not excited at all. Um, I'm not seeing it Thursday night, which bums me out because I have to work, but Friday morning at 10 a.m., I'm going to sit down and watch it, and I'm excited. I feel like it's going to be a good time, Um, and I feel like Ryan Reynolds is a great, great, great casting. I feel like, obviously, he was someone that was fan-casted for a while because it was just just a match made in heaven, but he's fully embraced that character. And even though a lot of people find him annoying and find him just uh, obnoxious and find him to just be stupid in general, that's fine, that's fair, we all have our opinions. But I still feel as if it's just a great casting because he understands that character in and out. I'm not a big comics guy, but I know enough about Deadpool to know that Ryan Reynolds was just just a great choice. And I really can't wait to see what goes on in this film because I've heard there's lots of surprises in terms of where it takes the narrative, of where it takes the plot, where it takes characters. And I feel like for a, you know, a character that's centered around, you know, uh, unfiltered com- comedy with lots of swearing, lots of bad words, lots of other things, I feel like that Deadpool is a character that maybe shouldn't be taken seriously, but we're going to end up finding out that he might be a pretty serious character in the end with lots of great drama centered around him. And I can't wait to see what they do with that, um, if they do that. So Deadpool 2, I'm excited. Um, not necessarily as excited as I am for like uh, Jurassic World or Solo necessarily, but it's a film that um, should be a good time. should be a good time. Um, so that's pretty much it for Deadpool 2. Uh, I really hope that you guys are looking forward to it as much as I am, and I hope uh, for a lot of people that have seen it, um, you know, I'm glad that we're getting some good word of mouth because I was afraid it was going to be like a Kingsman 2 scenario where even though I enjoy Kingsman 2, it falls more in line with borderline guilty movie pleasure, um, but a lot of people loathe that film and a lot of people 
kind of like it like I do. And um, I was worried that we were going to have to have discussions about that. But, you know, it's getting better reviews than Solo, or at least it's getting a better response than Solo. The reviews are generally the same. They're not too far off. But, uh, yeah, should be should be a good time. So I can't wait. Um, and that's going to be it for today. Um, a nice, short, sweet 30-minute episode by comparison to the last couple episodes I've had where it's just been over an hour long. Uh, so thank you guys for listening today. Like I said earlier, you know, I'm previewing Deadpool here, and you can find me on social media uh, at RomanRBC on Facebook, at RBCRoman on Twitter. You can find me uh, reviewing movies on Letterboxd and logging films there uh, at RomanRBC as well. And then you can follow my uh, movie reviewing page on Facebook, Roman's Movie Reviews. This week, though, my friend Matthew, he was on the second episode of the podcast, he hooked me up with um, his former... I believe editor in chief for Shifter magazine. I believe it's a con- it's not necessarily like a magazine that you see on like shelves, but it's more of like an online type of deal. So hooked me up with his former editor in chief. Ch- talked with him. They said that they had a spot open for people that review movies. Don't get paid for it or anything, but this week's review for Deadpool 2 is going to be uh with Shifter magazine and there's probably going to be a link on the uh website. Uh, wherever that is. So uh, that'll be up sometime this weekend, Saturday maybe, I believe at the earliest, Sunday morning at the latest. I've already chatted with him about time because I I said I'm sorry, I have to work Friday morning, and then I work all night Friday night. So hopefully uh, you guys will see that this weekend, and I'll be able to post it on the Romans Movie Reviews Facebook page and all sorts of groups that I'm in, uh, like the Movie Talk My Movie Fans Facebook group. So uh, you guys can check me out there. Thanks again for listening today. Next week, we're talking solo. Pretty much going to be a Star Wars-centric episode, but I've got Tristan Mayer on. It's been one of my most anticipated episodes yet because I love Star Wars, and Solo does not look very good. But I'm excited in a weird way, so I can't wait to reveal all that next week on Showtime with Roman. Thank you guys for listening once again, and keep on enjoying the rest of your week, and keep on watching movies.